Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Michelle Byrne and I'm here with two guests today, uh, Anna Nulon, um, who's a student and co-host of the Nulanog podcast and also the co-founder of Amisha Fosta and Glenn Fitzpatrick, regular uh, The Week at Work uh, contributor, Left Block supporter and Unite member. And I'm delighted to have both of them on here today. And as you all know, the, the Week at Work is part of Left Block, a political education and media project. And you can find more information and support us on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash leftblock. Um, so to kick it off, um, and I would love to hear more, a little bit more detail about the podcast that you host, which is obviously part of the Left Block uh, group. So if you wouldn't mind telling some of our listeners about your podcast and maybe reeling some of them into to listenership over there too. Yeah, so uh, I run Nil and Oak with my two best mates um, and it's a podcast in Irish and it's broadly covers very such a range of topics really goes from culture to politics and music we've got a bit of everything but all uh, broadly left-wing and just a lot of crack a lot of uh, joking and piss-taking but uh, so it's it's you know interesting content but nothing too heavy or nothing nothing too much so it's it's just great character that sounds great. And you, you were mentioning it to me as well. It's one of the only independent Irish language uh, podcasts uh, yeah, on the island. Yeah, I think so, so anyway. I yeah. could, be, could be wrong on that, but um, the majority of the rest have some sort of affiliation with a radio or a broadcaster of some sort, so... So it's uh, it's it's unfiltered content is what you're saying, which is great oh, yeah. to hear. We can say <laughs> we whatever we want. <laughs> we love that. We love that. Um, that's brilliant. And you've had a busy um, month, Anna, as well. I hear uh, some of your work with um, Isha Foster. You've been actually in the Oireachtas, um speaking in, on behalf of that campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so on the um, 17th of November there, we um, myself uh, as a, a representative of Mish Foster and... Uh, Andrew Jackson, who also does the podcast with me, actually um, sort of zoomed in from Brussels to sort of give me a bit of moral support. And Fair Play, which is an organisation for recognize, or trying to improve gender equality within the Irish traditional music scene and folk scene. Um, so we were in front of the Joint Directors for Tourism, Media, Art, Culture, Sport, whatever else they're, they're at, um, just to sort of give a rundown of what we've been doing for the past few years. And we had a list of um, demands, we're saying, that, you know, we're not asking at this point, it's been going on for so long. So we're asking um, for a statutory independent body that has investigative powers to uh, look into people who have um, committed stuff in the past and that can spread that information between funders um, funding conditions for individuals but also for organisations and festivals and events and venues and stuff and um, for a reform of the equality legislation so that's all the stuff we were asking for and um, it, it was good to get, get in front of the, the joint committee and now it's just a matter of seeing if anything actually comes out of it but hopefully you know we've said what we want now so it's it's up to them now brilliant that sounds fantastic and um people can find the fair play organization online am i right in saying that and if anyone wants to check it out yeah just follow the, your work. the briefing documentation and the both the opening statements can be found in the fair play website or on the mishfost instagram as well so if anyone's interested Great, that sounds fantastic. Um, and we're delighted to have you on. And I know you have loads of other stories that you want to touch on today, but I might swing over and say hello to Glenn, who, as always, reads literally every paper going at the weekend. So um, what kind of stories are you looking at this again, Glenn? 
Morning and thanks so much for having me on. No, uh, big big uh, boost to fill this week while uh, some of the other guys get a get a bit of a rest. Uh, well deserved as well. Um, yeah, so it was just a quick whistle stop tour. Um, uh, across most of the papers, it's obviously uh, you know uh, COVID is, is once again becoming the only show in town. Um, and there's sort of a mixture of I suppose you know reaction from uh, business community. Or should we? Let's just call everything a sector nowadays. We've, we've got the, the panto sector and the nighttime sector and you know, isn't it great that uh, we can frame everything in terms of, I suppose, the money that it makes? And, uh, you know, that's that's the space that we're in. Um, but there's very much, I suppose, a, a government reaction against uh, NEFET, supposedly, or supposedly NEFET leaking against government. And the solution to this is going to be to ensure that all future communications go through the government press office. So, uh, I mean, absolutely no cause for concern at all there that we're essentially going to gag our, our public health officials Um so the government have been burying their heads in the sand for long enough now they want to bury ours uh, in with them as well. Um, so I suppose like, the Sunday Times as ministers bring Neffet to heel on communications. Uh, and a lot of that is kind of, um, there's a lot of, lot of sort of uh, so synergy between the front pages and sort of what a lot of uh, you know, commentators are saying. I mean, the syndicate is in the business post there on the front of it saying that their mission uh, creep has become a dystopian challenge to an elected government. So uh I mean, just a total, you know, construction, you know, fake construction of how things actually work, where advisors and government are on the same playing field, and you know, never are really pulling the strings. And uh, just, I mean, in in reality, it's not how 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 politics or how things are done. Uh, but I suppose we're supposed to suspend disbelief, and uh, you know, we're the the big bad never ahead of Christmas again, and that's the space that we're back in. Um, and then mm-hmm. it was naturally the, the business post focuses a little bit on, I suppose, the supports that have been re- been reannounced, or you know, that haven't been reannounced. Um, and my heart just go out to particularly people in you know in, in entertainment and uh, you know who, who are depending particularly on this time this time of year and people who just gotten back to putting nights on and stuff like that. Uh, as was just to say, and that I was struck by by the T shocks uh, address on fr- on Friday evening that you know. Basically announcing that, that those like venues would have to go to fifty percent. Essentially, have to, to close because it's not financially viable. But you know, there was no kind of line of, you know, we will leave no stone unturned, or we'll make sure that you guys are looked after. You know, it's still very much a case of oh, the supports may come back for the for the industry, but it's just like imagine going out on, onto the plinth and announcing that and not announcing that the full supports coming back. It's just it's beggar's belief. Mm. Absolutely. I think that was very sly on their part. They knew that bringing it down to 50% made the events, you know, a lot of these events are already sold out to whatever capacity, 80% or even higher maybe. And they had all the proper um, things in place to make sure that it was safe. And then bringing it down to 50% makes the events not, they're not, they're not feasible, but because they're still allowed to be open then there's no support like PEP or any sort of um, financial support in place. So they're very, very sad about it because everyone's been left with no gigs and no money, but also they, they could do a gig at 50 cents. So we're not going to give you anything, even though they can't really, you know. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a false. Um, they're, they're putting forward something that isn't a reality, really, isn't it? And just to what you were saying as well, Glenn, around um, this whole like nefish cabinet kind of nefish government, uh, government like uh, literally in the, in the Indo it describes as uh, uh, being at war. That's the literal language they're using. But like to be honest with you, like even reading the the article in the in the Indo, it, it it just coming across as quite quite a circus. To be honest with you, right? So in one one uh, piece, it's t- saying how Leo Rad 
Radcar said in a, a parliamentary party meeting um, during the week that he said that Neffet has become a political organisation. So, um, so to, because of this, then they've decided at the moment when you're talking about how they're they're talking about uh, Neffet is being gagged or all of this kind of, you know, they have to run all of their communications through the Taoiseach's office now, which previously it was being run through the Department of Health's office anyway, but they reckoned, you know, the Department of Health and Tony Houlihan were too much too much friends and they were letting them get away with murder. So not to depoliticize the situation that they say is being politicized, they're putting all of the communication um, sign-offs through the Taoiseach's office. Now, if Leo Vadkar is worried about never become politicised, is that not directly politicising the matter uh, by putting through their communications through the Taoiseach's office? Um, and as you say, con- essentially controlling a lot of the narrative on this. But interestingly enough, the article also says, although everything's talking about the war between Neffet and government and how Neffet are getting the blame for um, a leak during the week. What they haven't actually, what there is a piece in this where it actually says they can't confirm whether it's Neffet leaking this or not. And actually, it might be the own government's cabinet. So, like, you know, they're, they're, they're using this opportunity now of this leak to completely go in and bash on Neffet again. And again, mm. it's, it's like, it's it's deja vu. We, we were in this exact same situation last year where they were like, Neffet, we're at war again with Neffet. We don't want to hear their advice. Let's uh, shut them up. It's, this, it's the same conversation again. And look, we're not really getting anywhere with that kind of a narrative um, by causing, like, a basically uh, a divide and conquer kind of vibe, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's sorry, go on. No, and I was going to say that look how that ended last year. You know, if you think about this, it was about this time last year that that all was happening, and then January was the highest cases we'd seen in a long time. So it's you'd think they'd learn by now, but obviously not. No, <laughs> I, I, I mean they they they're trying to tap into this. I mean, there is a there is an anti-Neffet uh, sort of vibe out there from a certain co- the population. I think what was interesting in the uh, in the Sindo uh, the Kantar research that's sort of talked about in terms of they've asked the public how people think that you know it's only twenty one percent of people in that in, in the research think that the that what what the, is being proposed is too cautious, you know, and so the actual but the hate that we hear and, and the vitriol that we hear towards public health officials from. From government and from, I suppose, particularly the chattering classes, is not representative of the vast majority of people. Uh, and I'm sure, listen, you know, we could sit here to the cows come home and say, you know, Neffet didn't get this right, or you know, Philip Nolan was wrong about this. But in the broad, I think people want to hear from their public health officials. Uh, they want, and I mean, e- even if even if one of Neffet did leak against the government, I would say, well, listen, they didn't have confidence in the government to deliver that message effectively. Therefore, they actually made a calculated decision that it would be better that we got out ahead of them. Uh, and, and, and you know, ultimately, maybe maybe they will save lives by leaking against the government. Because, they, I mean, time and time again, they've, they've, they've tried to declare this pandemic over before it's been over. And they keep bringing us back to square one. So, mm. you know, I, I just think we should be, I mean, how, how authoritarian is, is that to suggest that we would be gagging Neffet? And the same kind of people that would be accusing, you know, Neffet of curtailing freedoms and that. I mean, like, I can't think of anything more authoritarian than basically denying public health officials the chance to communicate with the public. Yeah, and it goes back to that whole um, comparison of like, do we want this pandemic to be led by actual public health advice or do we want it to be led by uh, well-paid, pure um, papering over the cracks of the reality of what's actually going on in government, which is what we're we're used to in every other sense of this government. So, you know, maybe Neffet are making a public health decision to get this information out before it's 
before it said politicized by the government and like it, the irony of saying that effort has become politicized they just, they just don't want to hear that information like sorry that you have to have a political reaction to public health advice but like the reality is it's public health advice um, and it's really interesting there's also another story in um the Indo as well kind of like following around that discussion um about how like fear is the mo- most p- uh, powerful predictor of behavior but like like people are at the, when you actually dig into the piece because you know it's talking about like oh let's not cause alarm because you know all of this kind of stuff but actually what people are afraid of is they're worrying about our health service that is the main like if you actually dig into the article that's what they're saying we are concerned about our health service and the number of hospitalizations that we cannot cope with that and like that's what's kind of driving people's behavior change if you want to kind of individualize it into the language that they've used in the article but like that's not something that we can individually change our behavior about when it comes to like the capacity of the, our hospitals or, you know, that that's, mm-hmm. that's a policy decision. That's a government decision. Um, and it all kind of ties back up into the government is not doing enough. And, you know, Neffet is say, saying a lot of this stuff around pub, public health advice. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of saying like some of those may potentially it's not what the government are doing, like whether it's the 50% uh, capacity on events or whatever that's driving uh, people to change their behaviour, but it's actually fear of the uh, how bad our health service is. Like that's what's actually driving pe- pe- people to change. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not really, uh, really you know, suitable. You can't don the green jersey and not want to get a preventable virus. You know, we just have to cop on to ourselves and just get it for the for the good of Ireland, Inc, really. Uh, but I mean, I would go one step further than saying that the government aren't, aren't doing enough. It's just... It just sort of feels like there's an element of bad faith where they're actively trying to undermine uh, public health efforts at all times. I mean, Faradkar's comment there is covered on the front of the Business Post this morning where he's describing uh, the, the new curbs as peculiar but understandable. Like, why go and create that extra level of ambiguity? And, and I mean, it's it's anybody with eyes, eyes in their head can see we've a potential new variant the way that we're you know, maybe being a little bit more cautious of it than the last one, that the ICU is under serious pressure. Like, it's it's perfectly understandable, like, why, why, why those restrictions are, are, are being considered or being brought back in. He knows that as well as everybody. So, I mean, have to call bad faith on that. Um, and unfortunately, the, the one thing that you don't quite get uh, from some of the analysis on COVID is that there's an element of bad faith and deference to business interest there that still isn't cut through. Yeah, absolutely. And like there was there's also another piece that I was uh, reading in the, the Business Post magazine, actually, and it was talking about like the great resignation. And when you talk about like bad fate argument, like I was like, I, I was kind of interested to see where they were going to bring this piece. So it's talking about how like how so many people are quitting their jobs in the pandemic and like how like the world of work is changing, you know, because like obviously a lot of things are online now. Um, this particular um, reporter, Alana McNamee, um, talks about how like she was in a job, she didn't see anyone in Zoom, she didn't have any teammates or all that so like and how like the grow like how that kind of like led to her becoming freelance and you know going off and like working for other jobs which you know they're calling the great resignation but like really it's just like we, we you know their, their workplaces aren't supporting um workers essentially is what she's saying but there is this whole this whole kind of like online um she goes on to talk about reddit and everything about like you know employment for all un- unemployment for all not just the rich which is an interesting tagline uh, um but talking about how people are leaving their jobs to live more fruitful lifestyles like and 
actual li- actually live, which, you know, the irony of that. But like a lot of people are talking about, you know, leaving their jobs um, more than since before the pandemic. But like maybe we're actually getting a taste of like what it's like not to be in the rat race for a bit, like not commuting, like how many hours a, a day to work on public, tra- tra- maybe public transport that's not or stuck in traffic. And, you know, maybe realizing that there's more hours in the day to actually do things other than just work in this capitalist machinery um yeah but it's just and then of course when that going back to that bad fate argument then obviously she goes on to to bring in the pup argument and how um you know how there's the potential that there's that's linking into why some people would have got a taste for unemployment and all of it like oh like it's 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 horrible reading but like actually she talks about like how oh yeah when you're walking down the road though like you, you can you can see in the high street like all the you know staff wanted hiring apply for you know apply for a job and here CV but like the difference is like of course they're going to be short staff like we've had this argument loads here as well like you know on the high street you're looking at like retail and hospitality like you know they're the most at risk in a pandemic most underpaid like why of course they're going to be impacted by skill shortages like when while people are trying to move into other sectors because they don't want to put that risk on they can't afford to work in those kind of industries um and interesting enough one employer says you know I, I feel like I was the one being interviewed in in these um you know people are deciding now if they're going to take these jobs and like a fucking fair play to them because like why should we have to settle for shite jobs um, with bad workplace cultures and terrible pay of course we should be asking the questions of like whether this job is worthy of us actually putting our labour into um, but yeah obviously that the, the piece in the, in the in the Sunday post was written slightly differently to how my take on it obviously but like they're talking about how like uh, essentially like oh how, how dare employ employees actually make a decision workers how, how dare workers make decisions mm-hmm. about their actual work life and uh, choosing what's best for them and, and their life like and I'm delighted to see it to be honest yeah did you see during the week the there is loads of articles going on the um the owner of Supermax saying that he was really struggling to get staff and that the PUP were causing people to get lazy and you know notoriously one of the worst places to work with supermax and getting all this um advertisement saying that how, how, how he was struggling so much to get staff i was like i don't think the pup is a problem i think it's the fact that they're all on you know zero irish contract you know on minimum wage you know charge so people not- gruesome looking uniforms <laughs> Yeah, I, do, I really don't think it's the PUP there. Um, what's the name, Patrick? McDonough, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I really don't think it's the PUP. That's your problem, mate. Uh, you should probably look at your own practices there uh, in order to get more workers in. Um, but yeah, no. Def- was that uh, Supermax it, as well, where like they charge you for the for the meal out of your salary, even if you don't want to eat it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Outrageous. Like, yeah. that shouldn't even be legal. Um, but your luck, we all, we all know about the, the, the protection of workers' uh, rights in this country are fairly questionable. A lot of them are voluntary anyway. Um, but is there any other stories that you were looking at there, um, Anna, that you want to bring in? Yeah, so I was actually uh, looking through some of the Northern papers for a long time. I'm at home for a week to try to study before my, my exam. So I was actually gassed, you know, reading uh, papers in the North or listening to BBC because I realised how... I I haven't heard about anything from the north when living in Galway. It's mad, you know. I came up north and I was like, you know, what's the COVID restriction? I had my COVID pass out going into the pub and like, oh no, that's not brought in here yet. And I, you know, you just don't hear anything unless you actually go digging for the information. Um, but uh, one thing that I was uh was big within 
the Irish language community this week was that Queen's have a Queen's University in Belfast have kind of well originally the Common Gaelic said that they were very against this um as a Gilgory residential um housing scheme so that um Gilgory would live together in halls uh, dur- during the year and a lot of other universities in Ireland have that in place I know Trinity do and might be another one in Dublin as well and then Galway have it as well and in Wales and Scotland there's um similar ones in place but Queen's have they, they've since then they've came out and they've said that they they're insisting they haven't made a decision yet not that they said no but uh, they haven't made a decision but I think that the, I think the word used was that it was divisive um you know and they're a university that's always going on about how they're so internationally renowned and you can imagine as an international coming over and looking to see how the university is treating its own native language is you know, laughable really. The fact that they're saying that it's divisive. You know, is it more? Is it not more divisive to not allow uh, Irish speakers to live live together? And there's a lot of questions like, why do they want to live together? Well, it's probably to speak Irish you know? yeah yeah no, it's not some sort of like secret organisation type vibe but um, yeah. yeah am I right in saying that the there's kind of like a long standing um, kind of like adver- adversity to the Irish language and kind of that conversation on campus in, in Queens as it is yeah it's been, it's been going on you know since since troubles near enough there's always been problems with the actual university uh, a lot of tension between the university and the Common Gaelic. The Common Gaelic in Queens is very strong. It's uh, they they have a lot of members, and uh, they they're doing great work, you know, in uh, bilingual science stuff. So hopefully they they do get through to the university. But some of the comments have been, uh, you know, divisive. I couldn't get over that. Divisive is the word. <laughs> definitely the word. All right, yeah. and and also um, Queens and other other campuses at the moment. Um, there's a lot of kind of uh, activity happening there and there around the strikes at the moment. The UCU yeah. strikes. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. more about that? They, they're on a strike there. I think it was uh, three days, first to the third, first to the fourth of uh, December there. Um, for there was a lot of talk on pension uh, reform and pay conditions, working conditions. Um, there is a a class quote from one of the spokespersons um, saying that an employment model which in many aspects resembles that of a fast food restaurant rather than a respected university so that's the same that you know there's some lectures that are on uh, basically zero hours contracts that the pay conditions are awful bad so I think you know similar to Supermax you know that's that's what they're comparing the university to now so uh, they were on strike there for a few days. Uh, and also, interesting enough, Ulster University uh, Student Union didn't support the strike. The union didn't support the strike. So, yeah, that's that's just disappointing. I know they got absolutely slated online yeah. about um, about that because essentially the the line that they put out was like very much kind of anti-union. And I think that the yeah. the the, the I don't know who was uh, responsible for decision to make the statement that they weren't supporting the strikes or if it was a democratically voted on at a council or something or what the information was there around that. But yeah, it's just disappointing to see um, essentially 
um, the same language being used by a union against the strike that you'd see used that you see the college the, bo- the literal bosses um, use which is disappointing but I think even in the reaction uh, to that decision being made I think people will probably have learned a lot from mm-hmm. you know that that statement been made so hopefully uh, we won't be seeing that kind of uh, stuff going on again um, but like Solidarity obviously told the workers who were out, strike, out on strike and it was great to see as well I saw a lot of like the postgrad uh, student workers uh, slash student workers um, out and really kind of like you know uh, that like tying in that conversation around like why students should support the workers and why you know all of that um, and that, that was great to see I saw I know a lot of the postgrad workers were had, slash students that kind of grey area they were out um, where they were out campaigning really hard for, for this as well and um, is there any Glenn did you want to come in on that? Oh, I mean, it's just, just. Uh, I mean, look at where where students union hacks in our own right, Michelle. I mean, we've, we've seen <laughs> not our first time at the rodeo with, with some of that stuff. Uh, and I mean, it's. I suppose uh, you know, like, hopefully, there's a little bit of a learning for for the student body up there that you know people reflect on some of that and that you know they can come to a new understanding of these things. But I think there's a real lesson that look, the battle of ideas is never truly over. And you know, myself, Michelle, probably worked. Uh, in the student movements during a time when there was good relationships between students' unions and trade unions. Uh, but that had to be sort of, you know, hardwired. There was a time where, you know, you couldn't say, oh, look, uh, IC2 were out in that demo in 2009 against austerity. And, uh, you know, USI uh, <laughs> elements were encouraging students to pass pickets of their own lecturers. And that the whole student-teacher divide was, was, was very stark, you know, about a decade ago. Um, I think probably student union, trade union relations have come along since then, um, but they can't be taken for granted, particularly, you know, in the nature of these things. New officers come in every year. Uh, uh, let's, let's, let's not uh, condemn them as being skeptical officers just yet, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's the pedal to the metal and make sure that those student-teacher uh, relationships can stand the test of time. Yeah, absolutely, because it is quite transient. A lot of those positions are one-year posts, and um, I think it kind of goes to the point of like, you know, we really need to get that that trade union education into into the colleges as well, so that people know. And obviously, if anyone's annoyed by whatever stance their college took took on on that particular strike, I'd encourage those people to obviously get involved in their union and, and maybe educate uh, elected officers who might be in positions making those those decisions uninformed, um, um, and make sure that their voices are heard. And and actually, kind of around that kind of discussion of um, industrial relations and all of that. There's actually a piece in um, the Sunday Independent I've, like it's far, far been a long time since I've seen a trade union um, article on the front of the Sunday Indo business section um, but of course when it, it suits business uh, to have it at the front of the paper I'm sure there, there's a reason why um, but it looks like the SIP2 staff have actually um, have an internal issue with the union at the moment um, and it must be fairly bad as, as um, if, if they're printed in an anti-union paper and um but essentially it kind of goes on that there's some uh, long-term staff members that are unhappy with the direction that the unions are moving in and they're they're organizing um to kind of have their voices heard on this and there's been a bit of pushback internally but essentially they're saying like they're not some of the union is moving in a in a place where they feel like they're not displaying trade union values um and i, I guess yeah there, there's probably an element of that and it's great to see that there's staff organizing internally against this but we have to remember as well that those staff are actually workers in a right in themselves and their their working conditions um should be uh listened to and you know if they have um issues as with their employer as well in that case then absolutely i'm, I'm delighted to see them organizing they did point out actually that they're 
kind of unionized and structure is actually internal to the union. Um, so that's a bit concerning because, you know, if that was a workplace and there was a, a workplace internal union that was run by the bosses and, you know, it was HR and all that, we'd be telling people, nah, lads, join an actual union. So like, I, I like you know, you'd wonder how if internal internal union structures works in a union, maybe should, they should be looking to join another union to get representation or whatever. Um, but that's not for me to say. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I guess if there are any listeners here as well that like, you know, it, they should be kind of looking at this and saying like it's great to see people organizing and standing up to, to make sure that the trade union values are reflected in their own union and I guess for listeners here I'd be saying like you know if you think that your union is moving away from some of the trade union values that you know we should be upholding um, then there's there is opportunities to change the rule book like and you know get involved in the conference and change the rule books you know and encourage more democracy in your in your union so that there's more save for lay members and you know that that we would uphold those trade union values and, and do get as active as you can to make sure um, because you know and because uh, a lot of the time sometimes people can get disheartened when they see things moving in the wrong direction but actually that's the exact moment in time where <laughs> you need to kick back into action and make sure that, that that's challenged as well and um, look we'll, we'll see I'm sure the Indo will be uh, giving us regular updates as to this because it, it obviously benefits them to um, you know in some way talk about how there's issues within the trade union movement um, on the front page of their business section um, but yeah I'm sure, sure we'll hear more about it but it was my first hearing of it on the in the paper myself um, I hadn't heard any uh, murmurs of it but um, yeah it's kind of I don't know if anyone else has any other thoughts on that or wants to bring in another story no just just to sort of uh, hope that it gets resolved really uh, and as, as you say those people are entitled to think that you work uh, like anybody else and look at we know I mean from, from all walks of life people's jobs get called a vocation or a calling or more than a job and that can that can happen and does happen in in, in organ- civil society organizations trying to change the world as well so uh now listen it's uh i mean it's just a shame to sort of see it in the cindo where they're kind of like uh you know open up a big bag of popcorn and uh using all the rhetoric like the big powerful national executive committee that which wouldn't apply to, to to you know other employer organizations but um fingers crossed that's 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 kind of the last we hear that yeah, absolutely. Um, I was I was having a look at it as well. Another story in the you know it was around um the around lobbying and uh, TDs and like there's the aviation chief says a coffee with TD is not the same as lobbying. Now. I know we have the Lobbying Act and it's clearly outlined what lobbying is and what it isn't and all of that, Chad. So there's always going to be someone who's like, oh, no, that's not lobbying. So essentially the, the chair of the Irish Aviation Authority has... Like it says right out in an Oireachtas committee that when asked directly, have you lobbied anyone on this committee or had any meetings? And she said no. Um, and then obviously then the, 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 the Fianna Gael TD was like, no, like you, we literally had a coffee and we talked about like Shannon Airport or whatever it was. And, and she goes, oh, well, it was just a accidental meeting. And, you know, if that doesn't count as lobbying if, you know, if, you know, if it wasn't going out with the attention of lobbying and all of that. But it's like, only a flat white. It was only, yeah, literally, like, absolutely, like, oh, like, it was only, uh, you know, she says, if she says that she doesn't regard it as lobbying, then it's not lobbying. But, like, when the question that was actually asked at the committee, whether she thinks that's lobbying or not, the question she was asked was, did you meet uh, um, any of the committee members in advance the word lobbying wasn't actually used um, and she still said no so that is a lie like that like regardless of what you say whether you say it's a lobbying or not lobbying she is outright lying to her Octus committee saying she's not meeting uh, committee members when she is meeting committee members whether it be accidental planned lobbying or not lobbying 
she lied like so she's been caught out on this anyway and I don't think there's going to be much done about the usual crack um, but it is interesting to have this whole conversation about what is lobbying uh, not everyone has access to uh, go for coffees with TDs in the same <sighs> way that these uh, aviation lobbyists do um, but uh, yet if they're not lobbying maybe they're mates maybe they're all oh, just accidentally b- bumped into you on the side of the road like at the end of the day you're, you you have access to positions of power to get your opinion across whether it be casual or whatever formal it's still lobbying like I think it really like a flow, a flow chart you know like it was you know it was, uh, maybe it was only a fireside chat is that what they call some of them or you know it was bumped into them at a networking event or something like that but uh Okay, I mean, if you don't if you don't want something to happen on on the record and you, and you're not creative enough to do that, then that's on you. Because uh, I mean, the lobbying returns are published what is it every quarter or something like that. And it's yeah. Like, you know, even if you're a, an NGO or or a trade union and you send you send an email to a TD, that could be construed as lobbying, and you have to register that you know on the return. And this is like, the dog in the street knows that as well. Um, so it's funny. It's like you know that these these people that think that they're above approach and then the, the, the rules don't apply to them. Uh, <laughs> their ass is shown uh, so so often. Yeah, I think these uh, full time lobbyists could do with some lobbying training. To be honest, such a because the amount of excuses that we hear out of them over what we think what they what they think they define as lobbying um, is a bit of a joke. To be honest, is uh, do you have any other stories you want to touch on there, Glenn? Um, I suppose it's kind of COVID adjacent, um, and there's a good bit of coverage. Um, so I I, I a little bit ago on in, in our own left left block circles last week, I was sort of saying, well, listen. There's all these stories about these like apparently organic protests of people in Marion Square. And I was like, was there any attempt to kind of get under the bonnet and see who's orchestrating them or which groups are being identified? And I suppose just to be fair to some of the media coverage this weekend, there is a good bit of that going on. So uh, Rodney Edwards and the Sindo, for example, I think it's a good outline of, of who's behind some of the uh, the anti-mask push on parents. Uh, names an organisation there called Teen Herd who look at their social media this morning and it's, you know, basically... Any TD or public figure that says something uh, very, very kind of like run the mill about masks, they're getting tweeted at with hashtag mask nonsense, stuff like that. So you can see very clearly uh, where some of that stuff is coming from. And I suppose it's just good to see uh, I suppose reporters acting on that basis. Um, and then I suppose the, uh, the, the the journal as well, Garrett McNamee's a piece, uh, which I mean, I suppose, considering we, we, we look at things from a worker perspective, uh, like the INTO come out and said this and they're aware that they have members that are parts of some of these groups that are like not going to uh, impose masks on, 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 on children. Um, and I mean, that's, that's all kind of unfolding and it's obviously a developing story. Um, but I suppose at least we can kind of start, start the sense make now where some of these groups are, are, are sort of originating from. And um, I mean, really like the, I mean, I hate, hate to wish anything on children really. Like I almost just wish they just closed the schools a week early now. So we could just not have this conversation. Um, because it must be it must be really mentally taxing on 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 everybody for all involved. But I mean, there's there's there's, there's really a lot of bad faith operators there as well who who are who are like potentially going to cause significant health consequences for for a lot over the next five or ten years. Um, but yeah, as I said, just just good to I suppose come back roll back a little bit and say fair play to some of the reporters who are starting to identify some of these people and some of these groups and and, and how they're carrying on. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, from from my own circles, there was I had. 
parents messaged me and been like, do you know, have you seen this uh, article or this this graphic that's going around? Do you know the name of the? It was like, I think it was the Informed Consent Coalition was one of the names on one of them. They were like, have you heard about these? Like, do you know, the, the language is really couched in a lot of the language that a lot of uh, those parents would have been involved with, with like, you know, the fight for reproductive rights or whatever it was. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they were, people who are fairly clued in were like, I can't tell if this is organized by the far right or not. Can, can you help me like figure this out? And like, you know, I, and it's really worrying when when people are fairly clued in are also very confused about the message and stuff. And like these graphics are going around parents groups. Parents groups are being like uh, brought into kind of like telegram channels and God knows what's happening, you know, what kind of conversations are happening there. Um, but like that particular one, that informed consent uh, coalition, first of all, it's originally linked in America. So shock horror there. And secondly, when you actually look at the Irish um page that that they have available public like they've kind of started to like have their message a bit more uh less less what's the word yeah less in your face so it's a bit more acceptable for people to kind of uh, kind of tie in behind the message now but if you actually scroll down on some of their messages beforehand like really really extreme anti-vax stuff like tying stuff to like you know vaccinations and autism and like you know the, the classic like really anti-vax stuff where you would have dismissed them and a lot most of those parents would have completely dismissed those groups um, before COVID and now how, because they fine-tuned their message and they're they're, they're kind of put, um, they're, they're, they've, see, they've seen a moment again Again, where they can jump on again government are failing their communications and their approach and all of that jazz but they're using that obviously as um an opportunity to to whip up fear and gather parents up in a frenzy in order to kind of be against health advice to be honest yeah i think i i've seen a lot of people like especially you know people i follow on twitter and that are real lefties and after these new restrictions or lack of restrictions that whatever way you want to look at it have come out people are really kind of leaning into that right wing uh you know anti-lockdown anti-restrictions anti-mask whatever uh into that narrative and it's it's quite worrying to see because these are people that you know are uh, would have been very very left wing and very pro-lockdown in the beginning so a lot of people are turning against that now yeah it's 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 very concerning um as well now that they're kind of tied into these groups like where where could that lead people you know because that that's been a tactic of the far right the whole way through COVID is like right well we'll get them in on an issue that they care about or that resonates with them and then you know the other messages start coming through about other areas and top- topics and this is how this is how it's been working and, and actually uh, on the far right there is actually an article in the Indo as well around how uh, European far right parties uh, had a meeting over the weekend I think it was and are coming together to form essentially like a um, a big far right grouping, like a big far right grouping in Europe. Um, you know, Poland uh, leaders, uh, Hungary re- um, leaders. Um, it's yeah, they're calling it a grand alliance. Um, but yeah, it's it's it, 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 it's clear that the growth uh, that the pandemic has led to the conditions. Um, and obviously the like the the kind of living under capitalism has led to the conditions of the rise of like fascism and essentially this is what's happening like the leaders of far right and nationalist parties across Europe coming together yesterday in Poland to kind of discuss forming a large like cross European alliance is like extremely concerning Um, and I know there was a small counter protest at it as well but like you know this is something that you know we on the left should really be concerned about like them getting like this organised that they're going cross European um and what that could actually lead to. So there's nothing, they haven't officially launched it yet, I don't think, but uh, it's definitely one to keep an eye on. 
may may provide an exit route for Fidesz from the European mm. People's Party and maybe a few Finnegaders as well. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, or maybe uh, there'll be an exit from the European Union. Who knows? Um, but yeah, what we? <laughs> um, is there any other stories on it that you were looking at? Um, well, I'm I'm at, as I was saying, I'm at home studying at the minute for my my exa- first exams on Tuesday there. So I'm heading back to Galway tomorrow, getting the train back uh, to go and sit in our exam hall with about 700 other students, which is really exciting. I can't wait for that and to potentially catch COVID and be stuck in Galway over Christmas in my freezing gaff. But um, yeah, there's been a big sort of campaign uh, for the past while uh, for no in-person exams. And a lot of colleges in Ireland have taken that on board and moved all the exams online. Uh, a lot of um, of the departments in NUI have their exams online, law, uh, a lot of law, some of business, a lot of arts. But um, science students are obviously immune to COVID, so we're all being thrown into the hall. And there's been a lot of videos and photos going around of the exam halls, you know, with t- the tables are packed in, but the university have said to us that not all the tables will be used, which not to conspire, but which leads you to think, why why is the table there? Why wouldn't you just put less tables in? So we don't know what's happening there, but um, it's they, they're not going to move them online, as far as we know. And uh, the Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris, came out after, after a complete lack of, you know, the higher education or education at all wasn't mentioned in the Taoiseach's address the other night. Um, Simon Harris then came out and said that he essentially said that he had no power over higher education, which is kind of gas that the Minister for Higher Education, you know, can't do anything about the higher education. So I think it looks like we'll, we will be going into the exam hall on Tuesday. And there, I've heard of people who had COVID about a week ago so they're not going to be out of isolation but um, what NUI have done is they've for some reason I honestly don't know why uh, they've moved the deferrals to the study week of semester two so if you defer your exams now they're going to be in study week next semester so you'll have all of your exams within two weeks for the entire year and you'll have no study week for semester two exams so for that for a lot of people that just isn't feasible that wouldn't be able to handle that like mentally or even just academically you'd be you'd be wrecked so there is a lot of rumors of people going into the exam hall knowing that they have covid or who are sick and just aren't going to get tested because they almost don't want to know so it's it's looking very dodgy really yeah and it's 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 kind of that those decisions are pushing people to make to take risks essentially um and like as if exams aren't stressful enough as it is without trying to figure out what what level of calculated risk you're going to take based on what the college is not acting on like and actually making a decision to protect everyone um that's really concerning and geez I hope the I, I don't know at this point if the, if the camp like is the campaign still going is it still still trying to move them online and is it still possible for that to even happen at this point it's it's still going you know there's still people are still putting pressure on the college but I I don't think it's going to happen. I had hope for a while there, you know, with the new restrictions come out, six to a table, but it's still 700 to an exam hall. So that's the way it's looking it's going to be. I don't think, you know, the first exams in two days, I don't think they have time to change it now. So... Yeah, if you, if you labelled the the hall a, a house or something there, you'd only be allowed yeah. to have six families mixed if in there. Have so. a few, if you could have a few pints, then we can't. Yeah. We won't catch yeah. COVID. 
Just do the exam. Do the exam in a, in a secondary school or a primary school. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems to be immunity across yeah. the board on all those places, isn't it? Um, Glenn, is there any other stories that you wanted to to bring up? Yeah, look, COVID on the brain. Uh, but there's one last sort of thing that I mean, there's been a trend. I think that's that's worth sort of commenting on. Uh, that the government is getting rightly criticised for, I suppose, um, you know, the and 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 health officials and fair. I mean, this this this, this debate over HEPA filters has been fascinating to watch. Uh, health officials, you know, basically saying that um, Professor Nolan doesn't understand the science around it. Uh, people saying this can make a real difference in schools. And I suppose it's kind of like an elephant in the room because, like, you know, the business owners coming on Claire Byrne live during the week. Uh, finally, Brendan O'Connor and Luke O'Neill talking about ventilation yesterday. And it's like the, 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 the government must almost be out of road on that one because, uh, but, but I sort of feel like, like, would them admitting defeat over ventilation, like, would that be like, I mean, they would never be able to say personal responsibility again because it would be the one thing that would point to actual institutional responsibility and accountability and something that employers and, 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 and the state could actually really do. And I'm just interested in a few days ahead, I think, if, if, if and in fairness, like, I mean, I know Orla Haggerty and others have been banging the ventilation drum since the very, very start, and to be fair to Paul Murphy as well, singing a very lonely song in, in, in the Oireachtas. Um, and I'm just, just wondering, like, uh, how are they going to stand over? Like, how they, how they, 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 they fought back ventilation for so long? Are we, are we finally going to get uh, some kind of a new um, ventilation regime? I know the PVP had a bill that was accepted by the government during the week and was the usual stick of, oh, it was just poorly drafted, so we're going to take this and do something with it. But, I mean, significant enough in and of itself that the government sort of said, right, we're not going to oppose this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of, it's like the message is finally getting through. But, like, yeah, I actually mentioned Orla Hegarty as well. I, I don't know how she's done it. She's literally been like unfair play to her because has been talking about this since the very start and has been ignored like actual experts in this area it's just like you wonder like what where this ties into their ideological beliefs is it literally we don't want to spend the money or like is it we don't want to be want to be wrong or we don't want other people telling us what to do like what has led to this decision to to have gone to this point where it's it's become so bad um that you know now they're conceding but obviously at this point we already know it's like far too late from when they should have acted in the first place um it is it's it's uh it's been a bizarre one to watch but um i'm hoping for the sake of all of obviously the the kids and all in school who are wearing five layers of clothes going in school every day and i, I think i saw a clip on rte of teachers saying oh if you if you want to get your teacher something for christmas get them a wraparound body uh hot water bottle like that's outrageous like that that that's that's <laughs> that's the level of requests that are coming in like we just want a bit of heat and uh not having to sit in cold, cold classrooms and try to teach and trying to learn and work in those conditions is oh I, I, I can't, can't yeah it, it's it's been an interesting one to watch anyway but um hopefully now it, it, it I think the funding has been approved in some way that, that that's going to go ahead but we'll see how long that takes uh usually takes a while for these things to actually come into place so hopefully by next year it's usually the way isn't it mm-hmm. Uh, there was actually, there was just, uh, and this is the last thing I would say on COVID, or at least try uh, uh, for, the, for the rest of the episode. Um, but the the, the, front, the Sunday Times as well. And the, to be fair to, to to some of the health experts, they've started to call out what they call like hygiene theatre. I mean, because we've known COVID is airborne for so long, uh, I mean, we shouldn't be in the same frame of mind where we were like washing down the, the shop and bringing it into the house and, you know, basically demanding people disinfect their hands every 30 seconds or whatever. Uh, but a Dublin businessman has devised a plan to bring holy water back to Irish churches 
via touchless dispenser is normally used for hand sanitizers. So the holy water is back on the menu uh, for the Christmas mass. And of course, uh, that ties in nicely with the fact that the 50% capacity doesn't apply to religious services. So um, get down and get your communion. All, 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 all systems go for uh, for the festive periods in that, in that respect. Oh my God. Sorry, that, that, that's, yeah, it's that kind of actually throws me back to a memory of uh, when I was campaigning for repeal, actually, uh, down in Waterford. We had a, kind of a couple of very uh, extreme religious fundamentalists on the anti choice side uh, who were going around spraying people with holy water who were on the, the, the pro choice side. Um, and I was lucky to be the recipient of one of those sprays. And it just kind of ties me back to that. Um, so uh, interesting, uh, very interesting. Um, we'll be avoiding. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I mean, I think it's worth highlighting because there, I mean, the Sunday Times are, are, you know, basically saying government bringing method to heal over communication. And then right below it is basically a piece on hygiene theatre. And I mean, uh, every piece we see on the importance of hand sanitizers, I think, undermines the, the piece about ventilation ultimately. I mean, obviously, good hand hygiene is, is, is well and good and that, but it's, it's still being offered. You know, if you were to say things in order, it should be good air, uh, wear a mask and... Uh, and then, you know, hand, hand washing and social distancing after that. But it's always inverted. And I think, you know, media at large have a huge uh, responsibility to bear. And I mean, someone strategically decided to put on the front page uh, about, about you know, this uh, sorry, t- sorry, sorry, touchless uh, hand sanitizers. Maybe it was David Quinn. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably David Quinn. Um, yeah, and you, you had another story that you wanted to touch on as well. Um, yeah, so just the the, the headline is that the, the trade boost shows this is for the north now. Um, why DUP has to get pragmatic on the protocol. So um, basically, the the economy in the north uh, recently has been shown to be outperforming England, Scotland, and Wales. So um, it's almost like Brexit was good for the north, I suppose, because it's able to be dealing with. Uh, the Republic and England, you know, has one foot kind of in the EU and one foot not. Um, but I think it's just DUP showing again their complete lack of political um, sort of strategy, just painting themselves into a corner again and sh- showing that they're they're constantly just making U-turns. Um, they said they were going to collapse the Assembly. They didn't. They said they weren't going to allow the marriage referendum. You know, it's just constantly they have absolutely, you know, a bit, a bit of a joke, really. So it's just another thing showing that um, that the DUP are back in the same position that they're always in. And, uh, you know, now that the border is being discussed again and again and again, more so than it ever has been before. And um, also... You know, they're they're saying that the economy in the north is doing well, but that's the the you know capitalist class, obviously, as always. You know, it's not the people in the north are not doing well, but uh, it's interesting to just feel the EP again doing the same thing. Yeah, it's a really interesting contrast to the front pages of the Sunday Business Post last again to you know what they were doing that they pulled about like what people in the Republic think about. Um, Irish unity and all of that and like then on the ne- in the next week we're talking about the economy and like how how apparently it's doing grand but obviously it, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's it's just we're having all of these really isolated conversations and we're still not talking about not, the, the yeah. bigger conversation really and I know as you say like it is it's coming up more and more but like is it still we're still re- not really having the right conversations about that kind of thing in the, at the end yeah, of the day 
because it, it would be a, you know a huge thing for people in the south as well you know you're gonna have around about 900,000 protestants join in the south there you know the D, not necessarily the DUP but there would ha- probably be a unionist party in the Dáil uh, as representatives of them like there, there'd be big changes and I feel like a lot of people don't even haven't even recognized that or thought about it got past the flag or the, or the national anthem yet yeah um which i mean i'm like the, the, the discourse down here it always feels like we talk about the north as if it's two thousand miles away and not 90 minutes up the road uh well like how do you feel anna when people are always like oh don't know if we can economically afford this uh it's the same people who are trying to dictate the conversation down here yeah i think that's to be honest it's just a scare tactic really um same you know people saying that we can't afford to improve the health system and you know it's it's all it's all a massive scare tactic really you know Ireland is a hugely wealthy country when you're talking about that upper class and the amount of money that's uh, being you know brought through Ireland Uh, so I don't think that that's you know it it is a conversation that has to be had obviously but I don't think it's it should be at the forefront and I don't think it's as important as a lot of people make make it out to be or that it's it's as scary or as big a problem as people are making it, constantly making it out to be, it's kind of just deflecting from other conversations that are are really important. Mm, it seems like every every element of the conversation is made scary, whether that be, for, you know, whether that be the Brexit side of things or whether that be about Sinn Féin, everything is scary um, to the point where we can't actually have a conversation about what that actually means for working class people. Yeah, exactly. There's actually a small piece in the Business Post uh, from Brian Keegan, Chartered Accountants Ireland, I think he is, uh, basically saying uh, uh, that, that if businesses' concerns aren't heard and discussions around uh, United Ireland, that everybody will be worse off for it. Uh, and I just kind of found it funny. I mean, like, the chances of, of a 32-county socialist republic versus a 32-county neoliberal republic appearing, I mean, there's one clear winner emerging at the moment. Uh, <laughs> it's not the, not the one that I, I, I assume the three of us would want. Um, but I thought it was it was kind of quite timely after the the now infamous rant that I won't legitimise. We're talking about it too much the other day in terms of is Ireland becoming a hostile place for business? Um, because if I'd given the exact opposite rant and used all the hyperbole, it still wouldn't come close to how much we simp and fe- simp for and fetishize like, Difficult word to say every Sunday. Yeah. Uh small business in this country, you know. Uh, and in actual fact, uh, we need we, we need to figure out ways ways to be a little bit more hostile to business. I would say. Yeah. As you say, I think it is, uh, you know, one or the other. It's, it's thirty-two county, but thirty-two county what? And it's not. It's not. It can't be a matter of the North joining the Free State in the, the state that it's in at the minute because you know, we've got the NHS up here. It's it's great. Like you know, and people aren't going to want to jo- join the South and have to go pay fifty quid for a GP appointment. So there has to be a complete reform. But the question is, is you know, in what kind of circumstances that's going to be and what's the outcome going to be absolutely yeah it kind of goes back to what we were chatting about last last week as well as like where are the conversations about the Ireland National Health Service or you know what's education going to look like across there you know those kind of conversations need to be had um absolutely um was there something else as well that you wanted to chat about on, on Sinn Féin was it Glenn there's a little bit on Sinn Féin uh, across the weekend's papers uh I suppose like last thing on the business post um so as part of their their climate series Sponsored by PwC, of course. Uh, Dan Murray speaks to Lynn Boylan, and it's kind of it's a nice kind of like quick chat in terms of three policy changes you'd like to see and a couple of personal changes you'd like to make, uh, which I suppose does you know from the get go kind of elevates personal choice up to policy choice, uh, which 
you know, you could you could allude to that being a form of climate denial, but I won't get into it today because there's some good policy suggestions in there. Uh, the first one she leads with actually is vote 16 uh, because I suppose uh, then rightly identifies that, you know, young people are going to be the driver of, of hopefully positive climate action. Um, and it just made me think back to the, uh, the the poorer cousin of the vote 16 referendum that we didn't get uh, or that we got. Was it the... the the baby president referendum, I think that ended up getting called to reduce the age of presidential candidates to 21. Um, and I just, I know it was like the, they had to run a referendum alongside alongside marriage equality to give some people to say no to. That was kind of the conventional wisdom. Um, but obviously there's been, you know, there's been constitutional committees. Was there a citizens convention on vote 16 before and the Fine Gael Labour government decided not to run with it. Um, but it would be actually, it would be brilliant for Sinn Féin to come into power and to, Put a vote at 16 referendum on the agenda. A genuine think it would. Um, we just have to listen to uh, all those conversations again. I remember Jedward are going to be in the Iris, and it was like it's totally infantilized. Yeah, um, absolutely. You just couldn't even have the conversation with. But it's like no. it's it, 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 these. Like, I feel like a lot of that um, the discussion around votes at sixteen, and even like the votes from abroad and stuff like that. You can't even have that conversation because the current sitting government are so afraid that the, those demographics actually voting against them that it's in their best interest, obviously, for that not to happen. Um, but like, and, and it ties actually back probably back into kind of that conversation around um, the cl- climate as well, like and how like. It's, it's interesting because constantly a lot of the narrative I hear is like, oh, we need to educate the young people about climate. I was like, nah, mate, you've got us here into this state. Like, I don't think we need to be educated at this point. Well, we obviously all could always be educated on uh, the climate, but like this, it's, it's almost like, oh yeah, we'll push it back to next generation, put the blame on them. The state that we're in right now is absolutely not the 16 year old's fault. But do you think this, I absolutely think the 16 year old should be voting on whether they think that people who put us in this place in the first place um, should be allowed to continue to govern us. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I also but- think that 16 year olds are probably a lot more well-versed in the actual reasoning behind the climate crisis and um you know how how radical the the changes need to be to actually make any sort of changes against that so i think they're, they're scared of that as well because you know a lot of 16 year olds are probably more a lot more radical than they are in their, mm-hmm. in their opinions especially around cl- climate change and stuff yeah, absolutely. We've become radicalised by our experiences. Like, you know, we're facing like a huge climate crisis, huge housing crisis. Like, of course, we're going to be having much more, we're, like we're, our existence is more politicised on the basis of the experiences that we're having as, as young people. And yet we're constantly berated, whether it be, be blamed for, for COVID or blamed for the climate crisis or whatever it is. Um, of course, uh, we're going to have a lot of disdain for that kind of narrative. Um, but we're very well, like young people are very well tuned into what's happening and probably more politicised than ever because of their, their experiences that they're living true mm-hmm. yeah there's um a couple of stories as well uh smaller pieces in the in those well that i was having a look at there was one um on uh, it's, it's one, of, one of my uh things that i like talking about is there was a, a, a backlash to um a county council meeting um essentially they were ordered to release the the recordings of the videos of meetings that they had around their development plan and of course the council was like now nah, we're not releasing those recordings because you know we we have an understanding of gdpr and personal information all this it kind of ties back to uh, your one saying ah this isn't lobbying now there's the, the council saying oh, oh no this public meeting that we recorded is actually covered under gdpr legislation it's like nami it's literally a public meeting and if you have a recording of a public meeting then every 
everyone there is understanding that all of the information is publicly available. So essentially, the council had challenged uh, the fact that they weren't going to release these recordings of, of this highly disputed um, development plan meeting, apparently. Um, and yeah, that that, that the, what happened in the meeting wasn't even reflected in the minutes. So they were obviously, but this is this is a regular thing. Like this is something that I was kind of banging on about during COVID, like how the public was shut out of local council meetings because they didn't have online meetings. And then when they did have online meetings, they didn't release their recordings and they take down the live stream immediately um, and all, like ridiculous carry on. And it's still happening. Like, like this week in Waterford as well, um, there was a, there was previously a motion passed that, you know, they we're going to continue to live stream the meetings after uh the kind of council meetings um, went back offline. Um, but the council staff pulled the fast one. And despite having a motion saying that that, that should continue that, to have online meetings, they removed the budget line from the budget just before it was passed without any discussion with councillors. Um, so now technically the, the, online, um, the online viewing of council meetings can't be funded because they uh, removed from the budget proposal that was passed without any consultation. So um, I hope this case that has been ruled that they have to release the videos of this council meeting actually applies to all councils now that all councils should release all recordings and have all all of their uh, public meetings recorded and available online and the recordings afterwards so that people who can't log in at 11am during work hours to watch a four hour meeting is actually able to watch it back if they do want to. And it kind of goes back to like we're relying on a lot of neoliberal media uh, sources in order to report these meetings in a way that they that they deem acceptable to report where, where we know a lot of these uh, that where the media interests lie in all this and, that, and we, we know we talk national papers here but that goes for local papers as well um, where you see the platform of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael councillors constantly um, and you're not hearing the, the alternative voices um, when it comes to this but um, yeah it's interesting to see how, how that'll have um uh, how, how that how the council uh, bureaucracy is going to react to that one? Um, but I'm I'm obviously delighted to see it because it means I've I've another angle to kind of go banging that drum again about having more access to the public and uh, you know truly making the the council meetings uh, worker workers um, councils at this point you know get the get them get them in there and get them talking get them asking questions um, and have full transparency and accountability for the people that are in there doing whatever they want essentially. Um, there's also um, another piece as well from the um, around George Kencho. So um, th- this piece is um, happening around the, the year anniversary of George Kencho, who's a, a young man, young 27 year old who lost his life um, last year. He was essentially murdered by the, the guards. Um, it, and I'm sure everyone at this point is very familiar with the conversation, but the the, the GSOC, so the Garda Ombudsman, has been investigating it for the last year and they made promises to the family that they would have the investigation wrapped up by the one-year anniversary. And that's not happened. Uh, the family met with the uh, GSOC, who are supposedly... The 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 the, um, the the reviewer of the independent review um of um the guards but like anyone who's any in any way anyway familiar with the guard ombudsman knows that most of the investigations uh, by the guard ombudsman are handed straight back to the guards to investigate themselves and um, so this is like the usual crack and um, but the family are obviously saying that like they met with they met with the GSOC was hugely painful and traumatic for them to have to hear that the investigation is not ready and not finished and they have no timeline for when it's going to be done but like it goes back to that whole thing of like the GSOC is not independent like as as much as should be like you know if if the guards are investigating the guards like how do you know what like it's in their interest to delay this until you know it's out of like public uh the public view or yeah exactly but also 
like they're investigating themselves like and their own research that they have published shows that the guards are institutionally racist like that's their own research and countless other uh, research shows how the police are racist um so what it's 100 not their best interest to investigate this uh, particular piece so i i hope that there is that the family's call for a public independent inquiry outside of gsoc does happen and that this this does uh that the family do get the justice that they deserve because as they say like if there's no justice they have no peace and the, the family are in in arms about this but interestingly as well there's a story right beside it um where it talks about the guardian are getting help in dealing with mental health cases so they're now relying on this new pilot program program um essentially where they're they're going to be uh, relying on other state agencies taking over for for where the guards are stepping in a mental health um a kind of incidents where it actually should be people who are qualified in healthcare deal, dealing with the situations, which is really, really positive. Um, and it's coming out from discussions of this like new pilot program where they've like moved away from like joint policing committees and more into like community safety partnerships, uh, which have all of these um, kind of institute, like healthcare institutions around the table with the guards talking about how it's, how to make our community safer. So like, hopefully there's going to be some more positive moves on how that, how that, um, move forward I can't like obviously the two articles are beside each other so you're supposed to tie make ties with it but like at the same time you can say like oh that's a good news story but at the same time there's still no justice for George Kencho's family um, so that that's something to to, to note for now we, you know two things can happen, be happening at the one time but just wanted to flag that um, general problems of just racism and discrimination within the Guardian you know that that's still a separate problem altogether and actually um, his family also asked the inquest to consider um you know broader questions about uh, racism and discrimination within within the guards so that's a request that the actual family has made um into that inquest as well so hopefully there's some sort of answer or you know yeah yeah it kind of uh, brings even up- just admitting mm. some, some sort of accountability but yeah, it kind of goes back to the questions: Can you can you reform such a uh, institutionally racist organization? Is another question, a larger, broader question. Not. Maybe for another podcast, uh, probably not. Is uh, probably the answer on that one. But um, does anyone else have any other stories before we wrap it up? I wish I had some good news for you, Michelle. That's the only thing. <laughs> one day. Oh well, there was there was some good news. I think I saw. Well, no, I don't know if it's good news, but. Uh, Tato, I think it was in the Sunday Business Post, but uh, uh, Irish Tato has a. I know I mentioned Boris Johnson last week as well, but like one in quotes of the week or whatever, it's like Boris Johnson loves uh, Tato crisps or something like that. I don't know if that's a good news or whatever, or sales of plummet after that, but uh, it's a piece of promotional piece there anyway. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe we'll bring some more good news for next week. I don't have anything on the, on hand right now to, to jump in with, but um, we'll definitely be covering the news again next week and we'll, def- we'll pick some more out. But um, I just want to say a huge thanks, obviously, to Glenn and Anna for joining us um, again this week. So um, this has been the week at work and um of course follow us on sh- socials and get a share share us out if you can um we got a quite a good few shares during the week and um, we featured in a lot of uh, people's Spotify uh, wrapped uh, lineups as their top pods or whatever that they've been listening to I know Glenn yourself you've compiled a number of minutes over the year anyway listen to us and I know a lot of other people have as well we really appreciate it um, but do share us out it really helps us get the, our messages out and our, our listenership up and we really uh, appreciate all of the support and we'll be back again next week so thank you very much <laughs>